Welcome back to Living on a Changing Planet. After a week's hiatus, we are back. It's a shame that you can't see what I can see because Patrick showed up today wearing, like he <laughs> dressed like he lives in Antarctica. He's literally wearing a parka <laughs> right now because I think it's colder than 15 degrees out in England and he's suffering. It is It is frighteningly, it's, it's more the wet than the cold. Anyone in England will understand what March is like. Yeah. Speaking as someone who's lived through his fair share of cold winters in Canada, I've never been as cold as I've been in England. The damp, the dampness is remarkable. Other than <laughs> the miserable weather, Patrick, how are you doing? I'm I'm fine. I'm grateful for the coat, and uh, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing really well. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. I'm excited for today. I'm excited to <laughs> keep my mouth shut for a change. <clears throat> uh, I think I over monopolized the last episode a little bit. Um, that's a bit redundant. I monopolized the episode a little bit last week. And this week, of course, we have a psychologist, but not just a psychologist. We wanted to interview psychologists and politicians and business people and economists. And today we just thought it would be more efficient to just get someone who does all of those things. So uh, Patrick, why don't you introduce our guest today? Really excited for it. It's time for me to geek out a little bit and uh, have a conversation I've been looking forward to since since Per Espen confirmed that he would be on the show. Uh, I'm thrilled. So as you, as you say, he's I've I've known him as a as a, a psychologist primarily in the climate space. Uh, he's a trained clinical psychologist. Uh, he's also. Uh, political representative in the Parliament of Norway and has represented the Green Party. He has a PhD in economics as well, for good measure. Um, his TED lecture 2017, which was just brilliant and paved the way for our understanding of uh, psychology as it relates to climate communication, uh, was watched, oh, frankly, millions of times. He also wrote probably my favourite book, on uh, when it comes to climate psychology, uh, what we think about when we try not to think about global warming, and more recently, uh, Tomorrow's Economy, a guide to creating healthy green growth. He's also, I believe, the only psychologist to have contributed to Greta Thunberg's climate book last year. It gives me great, great, great pleasure to introduce Per Espen Stockness to the show. Per Espen, hello. That was an unusually warm welcome. Thanks so much, Carter and Patrick. I feel, um, yeah, honored. Mm. Well, we're we're honored to have you, Perespin. Let's let's start the same place we try and start every episode, which is: Can you tell us the story of how you first learned about climate change and how that made you feel? Yeah. So, um, shall we say I'm uh, no longer young and still far from half perfect. So this goes way back. Um, but I was aware that uh, Jim Hansen, um, then a leading climate scientist back in the 1980s, he broke the news to the world through a testimony to the US Congress in 1988. And at that time, I was studying, just studying psychology. I was also studying some Jungian psychology in Zürich and with my girlfriend at the time, I was getting into a network of eco-philosophers. And I was reading a book called Transpersonal Ecology as we were traveling Tanzania and Kenya. 
um, on a very low shoestring budget. Uh, we were students. Uh, and I, at the time, I was reading this transpersonal ecology, which was questioning the entire endeavor of industrial so, uh, civilization and uh, putting philosophical questions about all ecological assumptions. And just around me was playing around this crazy scene of white privilege and um, stupidity uh, and arrogance when it comes to the amazing nature around us. Um, and this p- reading and this experience. Uh, I don't know, somehow deepened my frustration with European Western industrial culture. Uh, and more I learned about eco-philosophy, particularly inspired by the professor Arnie Ness, who founded something called Deep Ecology back in the 70s. Uh, the more it hit home. Um, so it wasn't climate scientists or a wildfire or some kind of catastrophe. It was more or less um, ever-deepening questioning about what on earth are we white people doing? I find it really interesting that you came to concern about climate from a systems perspective. I think a lot of climate scientists, myself included, start their journey thinking climate is the only environmental problem that matters. Because if you don't solve climate, who cares if there's some plastic pollution. You know, you can always pick up the plastic later. If you destroy the climate and you don't have a habitable (laughs) surface of the planet, nothing else really matters. But the longer you spend studying climate, the more you start to realize that everything is interconnected. So we spoke last week with Dr. Miles Allen. And when he was describing what he worries about when he worries about climate change, he spoke about this concept of climate change as a threat multiplier, that there are existing uh, there are existing problems within society and between society and our environment, the planet we live on, uh, and that climate change will exacerbate those problems to a point where society could start breaking down long before the climate does anything dramatic. Could you tell us a little bit about how you why you approach this problem this way. Because to me, it's it's like you started at the end of the journey instead of instead of from the beginning. So I'm curious to hear about what inspired you to become interested in some of the other problems surrounding climate change. Yeah, because in a way I was piggybacking on this, um, should we say, tradition of eco-philosophy that was founded in uh, Norway around 1970. Um, there were two main sources. One was a, a, the Limits to Growth study that looked at this from a systemic point of view with a one of the Norwegian co-authors, Jürgen Randers, who's been my colleague, analyzing um, the economic uh, future from 1972 in the middle of the population bomb towards uh, 2000. And they were seeing that most likely we will hit some kind of limit and there will be overshoot and collapse. The other source was, um, which was systemic thinking, not just climate. Uh, it was all food production and energy use and uh, individual uh, consumption and uh, political systems was all rolled into that. And the other source was uh, this philosopher, Arnie Ness, who approached this from a, shall we say, logical point of view. So he was um, trying to point out how short-termism and um, uh too little self-questioning and self-reflection were causing us to do suicidal and self-destructive things. 
So his journal was called Inquiry, um, and he conceptualized deep ecology in the sense that we have to ask deeper questions. Why are we doing it this way? Okay, that's one reason, but why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? And that would bring us down to a deeper value system. And if you rearrange your values, you would see that another practice would grow forth. So um, particularly this issue of uh, the self. I was studying Carl Jung, particularly, um, a colleague and founder of depth psychology, along with Freud, Sigmund Freud. And then his um, conceptualization was that each human have an ego and a deeper self. Now, um, the, the deeper self is what constitutes the whole of your psyche, including all your different potentials and emotions and unconscious content, while the ego is just your everyday awareness chattering away. So his point of view was that um, the ego it may easily become one-sided and then following like mastery or um, becoming superior or having control or um, getting acknowledgement from your peers as a main goal. But that's just a tiny bit of the self. What is needed to become a full human, a full individual, is to for the ego to relax its defense mechanism and then connect to your deeper emotions, your deeper sense of self and a wider network of um, uh, soul content, if you will. Uh, Arne Ness had a very similar conceptualization about what he called the ecological self. He would say, humans today are thinking too narrowly, you, and, but you are more than you think you are. You are also the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the mountain you sit underneath, and the part of the, the food stream and the water stream is also flowing through you. And if you limit your self-understanding to both the little self or the ego, then you're setting yourself up to not follow the logic of that larger system. So these were really the two, shall we say, intellectual inspiration sources that made me... Um, a pioneer in eco-psychology and climate psychology because um, Jung didn't know anything about ecology. He hardly ever mentioned it. And Arne Ness never knew much about psychology because he was all into logic and concepts and analysis and deeper questioning and, and inquiry. And also, uh, to a certain extent, following um, Gandhi in, uh, in nonviolent action, seeking the center of conflict. So together from that very fertile soil um, and in the conversations with a few trees, uh, my approach kind of built on that. Uh, but, you know, um, like all academics or writers, I mean, you just, if you end up being uh, fecund or fertile, then it's because your roots are in a good place. And I was very lucky to find those roots, I think. And uh, yeah, it's been giving me deep nourishment and motivation and um, fun to actually uh, work on these issues, despite all the crazy destruction and suicidal systems around us. You started your career, as Patrick mentioned, as a clinical psychologist. And at some point in that career, you completely reoriented your professional life from clinical psychologist to climate work. Uh, you know, one does not just <laughs> completely reorient their life around a new topic without some sort of intense 
emotional experience going on. Could you tell us what that experience was for you and what it was like? So thanks for bringing that up, Carter. Uh, not many uh, podcasts would, be, would dwell with this. They're too quick. They want to go to solutions and economics and whatever. So uh, it's good to go into depth on these issues. And um, I got a couple of kids uh, around the, the Millennium Change Show, like 1988 and 2002. So in the following years, I was doing mostly clinical work and, and being a, a busy um, dad of babies and kids. Um, which on the one hand was fine, but on the other hand, I felt very frustrated being in the wrong place and um, not engaging with the right stuff. So I ended up with a divorce. And um, I remember after delivering the kids back to my ex-wife at some point, um, what's the point of all this? And uh, suddenly um, it was late, uh, I think it was November evening with a very clear sky when Norway is pretty dark (laughs) in November, December. And uh, I could kind of see the moon and I could feel the air moving between my fingers. And then suddenly kind of just dawned on me that, ah, okay, now is the time to pivot towards a, a full-time focus on, on climate. And actually, I saw my divorce and the pain and all that as a opening uh, to being able to f- fully more focus. At least the weeks when she had the kids, I could go all in on climate. Because at that point, it was kind of growing, not least also through the cultural awareness of the IPCC4 assessment report and uh, Al Gore's uh, inconvenient truth movie and the Nobel Peace Prize towards uh, IPCC. Um, So I went to uh, Copenhagen after that decision, which was a conference where they were aiming to put in place uh, the first climate treaty, having negotiated about 20 years uh, from 1990 to 2009 fruitlessly. Nothing came up. So they were trying and trying and trying. And there was a Kyoto protocol, but that was very full of holes and incomplete. And there was this huge buildup of, of expectations that finally we would get this in order. Uh, there was despair and there was anger and there was hope. So um, Copenhagen was um, nicknamed for Hopenhagen that you would actually get finally uh, a global treaty in place that would make a global solution available. Uh, I went there and I was, I think that was the first time there was a big climate international demonstration, a rally, 100,000 people. It was a cold November. Uh, we were, we want action now. What do you want? Climate action now. And uh, marching all the way down to the conference center. And I was watching all these ice bears, people with ice bear, polar bear costume walking around and and uh, feeling part of a big demonstration, but also a bit outside of it. I'm not that kind of person, really. I'm more like a philosopher or reflective. So I felt a bit strange. When the whole thing collapsed, uh, it went really bad. Uh, Nothing came out of it. So it wasn't Hopenhagen. It became Nopenhagen. And after that came uh, the financial crisis, and um, there was no interest in climate at all. Um, Everybody was screaming about something called climate gate. So... Everything was collapsing. So it was very dark days, uh, very dark days. Um, I I wasted my life for doing the wrong thing, I felt, and climate was going down the drain and the financial crisis was taking all the attention and there was no movement after 20 years of climate negotiations. So that was a very dark time. And then I decided, hmm, I need to look into the psychology of this. Um, So rather than just rushing around, at that time, I was also started teaching at Norwegian Business School. I worked with economists. I was looking at um, entrepreneurial projects, 
but I really felt that I would start to study um, the climate psychology. And even that word didn't exist at that time. Um, and there was nothing putting those two words together. I mean, climate is out there and psychology is in here, whatever. How I mean, can't put those things together. Now we do, uh, you do, Patrick, uh, and others. So we have been moving the, the, the what do you call it, moving the bar. Yeah. If I can challenge you gently, Paraspin, it was a great answer, but you didn't speak much about how you felt going through that process. What were your, what were your feelings? Yeah, okay. Um, so back in the 2000s, um, Renewable energy was insanely expensive. Um, some foresight thinkers were speaking about possibly having a breakthrough on low-carbon energy, but it was like coal was the official future. People couldn't see any way that humanity would get off fossil fuels and coal. So um, also, as with the, with the negotiations completely stalled, um, and locks between poor countries wanting the rich countries to pay first and the rich countries, particularly the US under crazy George W. Bush, uh, demanding that uh, poor countries have to be part of the deal, otherwise there wouldn't be any deal because otherwise it would crush the American economy and we wouldn't lose jobs, etc., etc. So it was very difficult to imagine a uh, constructive outcome um, at the time. And... Uh, in me, that um, probably paralleled some of, of dark feelings in the sense that I was, um, wasn't was really responding to challenge, unconscious, disillusionment or, or despair that was growing. At times, um, I could... I remember once I was up walking our dog at the time and and um, coming back in the rain and just kind of some for some I was alone at that time and uh, for some reason kind of thinking about all the things we were losing in terms of the nature uh, species the the wild and um, seeing the relentless um, growth of relentless gray growth I could just sometimes feel that uh, a deep pain or or grief moving through me um having spent some time with depth psychology and transpersonal thinking i try not to identify with emotions but more like watch them see them feel them but not um so they say think they're mine it's more like the world's deeper currents moving through me and this is something i brought from depth psychology also a Jungian called james hillman he speaks about emotions as something uh, ex movere, the Latin root means to move out or move through. So emotions are really deep um, rivers or inflows uh, from beyond that happen to go through a human body. And uh, as Western individual, modern people, we tend to identify personally with all these things happening. I should own that emotion. I should take responsibility for my dark whatever impulses or I shouldn't think about putting a knife in somebody i might do it i might you know should own all that aggression myself and grow up and be responsible but that's a kind of very narrow egoic way of approaching it rather than um being trained into soul work which is seeing as if in a dream yes i feel this i, I wow i'm gripped in this thing i will not um act it out i will just or not just i will 
find ways to express it, maybe in art or movement or thought or words, but I'm not going to let it um, dominate my life. So in a way, I was exploring this darkness, both in the culture and the energy field and the economy and in my personal life. And also the frustration of the feeling of being stuck, that I have been uh, stuck in psychotherapy. I've been stuck with small kids. I've been stuck in a wrong perception, a wrong uh, relationship. So when I finally made that decision to reorient my life towards um, working both on solutions and starting to research the psychology of climate and our responses, then it was a huge release of energy, I'd say. Uh, suddenly, those dark emotions became like currents or rivers that could push me. And um, I think I entered some years of uh, exceptional activity and creativity. Um, not that it, I, I didn't get exhausted, I did. I, I you know, remember a few weeks of, it, of the teaching for weeks or writing, I could kind of collapse on the sofa feeling even nauseous because I've been running myself too hard. But it's like, it wasn't like a burnout. Uh, it, it quickly recovered and found ways to, to, to move onwards. And it felt deeply meaningful both to create those clean technology ventures, which was a response to that darkness in the sense that we were envisioning a way to use um, natural gas and methane without having any impact on the climate. So it was a new technology using microwave plasma that could cut uh, the bond between the carbon and the hydrogen. So you'd have a clean hydrogen product with a dry carbon product. And I was searching for these kind of solutions that could actually create a different future. And for me, um, immense uh, motivation, immensely motivating and, and, and deeply nourishing somehow to have that darkness underneath and the action on top. Uh, so it really helped me. And then when I was done with the entrepreneurial period, uh, I felt this huge urge to write that book that you mentioned, Patrick. Uh, now I need to, to move... Um, towards um, expressing um, these thoughts in a way that is uh, speaking to the zeitgeist, speaking to the needs of the current time, um, doing some kind of cultural therapy or economic therapy, which is therapy on, on not individuals, but on, shall we say, cultural and, and social structures and modes of thinking that are more than personal, more than individual. I don't know if that was the answer to your question, Carter, but at least it was. It was. was. No, it was an excellent answer. Thank you. I have a question now for both you and Patrick. You talked about this concept of not identifying with emotions. And we, we touched on this briefly in our second episode with Mitzi Janelle Tan. But now that I have two professional clinical psychologists here to, to ask about it, I think this, this concept is going to be really antithetical to a lot of people. And it certainly was to me the first time I heard it because I'm very much a, if I'm feeling bad, I'm going to put the fact that I'm feeling bad on my to-do list and then I'm going to take action to make myself feel better. And this idea of not identifying with emotions and observing them is just completely the opposite of that. So I would love it if you would both talk a little bit about why this technique is useful and how you use it in practice, just anything that you can say expanding on why this is a, a useful way to look at the world would be deeply appreciated. Thanks. So I'll, I'll kick it off and then Patrick can compliment. Um, so 
a lot of, the, so we say, the think positive and the cognitive uh, traditions in psychology uh, would try to coach you into becoming a more efficient, um, more uh, constructive uh, human actor by controlling your emotions and then um, doing what's uh, doing more of what's uh, already works. So we have kind of proof along the way. Um, it's what I call an ego-centered approach. Um, and if I really took in what Carl Gustav Jung called the deeper self or, or Arnie Ness called the ecological self, then how can I respond to what's more than just my ego in me? Uh, and this is where you shift from, um, shall we say, um, mastery-oriented ego work towards soul work, which involves your entire conscious and unconscious uh, present and future uh, being. Uh, so the more the, the transpersonal uh, level. So it is about not feeling individually responsible, putting it on your own shoulders to fix the problems of the world. But as I was mentioning a bit earlier, to connect with a larger network of flows and meanings and connections that, and allow that to, to move through you. Um, because otherwise you're setting yourself up to burn out and fail. Uh, and it's a major problem of, of Western activism. Uh, it's also a byproduct of, I would say, Christianity, because it's your um, life, it's your sins, and it's your responsibility to fix your sins, otherwise you'll go to hell. You're all on your own, and you have to shape up or ship out. I mean, so, so it's a very heroic and narrow, ego-focused way of thinking about change. And... When I wrote the book, the subtitle of that book is A New Psychology of Climate Action. And the main point, and thank you for picking up on this, Carter, because most journalists and most people haven't really picked that up. And the main point in that third part is this shift from being just an ego trying to fix overwhelming problems to connecting with those structures and forces and networks that actually are a much broader sense of self, an expanded consciousness, if you will. And it gives you so much more resourcefulness, so much more deeper motivation. At least it does for me. And I've experienced that for others as well. And um, it's it's one of the few things I picked up, so we say, from psychotherapy that I could actually apply directly in the climate uh, field because so many climate activists take on the responsibility, get despaired, and they feel themselves incomplete and inefficient, and then they feel they fail, and that just adds to that very bad, um, closed, vicious cycle. Sorry, Patrick. No apologies necessary whatsoever. No, I mean, it's, it is, uh, it's fascinating hearing your perspective on this new psychology of, of climate action and this sort of egocentric, if you like, uh, kind of... Um, psychotherapeutic approach to these things and if we're if I'm doing so you know some sort of workshop or speaking engagement or something it's always a real bugbear of mine when the title appears as something like overcoming climate anxiety <laughs> because I think well is that really what we're is that really what we're aiming for here and you know is, is that on the individual to to necessarily do that and I love this I love the depth psychology idea of um emotions as as being deeper processes that we can notice and observe and I, as you as you were sort of talking I was thinking how do how do our sort of does our modern understanding in therapy relate to that those ideas and I suppose 
there are some things that might be closely approximating it. You know, obviously we talk a lot about emotion, uh, emotional observation and uh, being the thinker and not the thought and uh, looking at our emotions rather than from them, etc. And And sort of what we might consider kind of acceptance and commitment therapy type ideas of emotional observation and detachment. And um, so I'm wondering if, if some of that might be creeping into our, our kind of modern understanding. It's really interesting, actually, that you you, you came from a, a background working with people who are experiencing chronic pain. And I, I've spent some time in those kinds of services myself. And earlier in my career worked in kind of health psychology, you know, oftentimes with people with kind of chronic health problems. And I, I always sort of saw a little bit of an overlap, actually, in terms of in terms of the climate crisis, in the sense that um, this is not about challenging our thinking, right? This is not about saying actually your 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 thinking is 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 uh, distorted or dysfunctional in some way. Actually, there there is a real problem here. It's much more about how you decide to live in the context of that problem. Um, I'm just I, wa- I was wondering whether for you did you did you find yourself taking any of that sort of approach from kind of kind of helping people with something that essentially uh, wasn't just a problem in their thinking and also was a problem that let's say was going to continue to exist throughout their lifetime. And therefore it becomes much more about, about, you know, ideas such as acceptance. I mean, it's no, it's no coincidence that uh, mindfulness based programs were developed for chronic pain initially, right? Because it's, it was something that let's say that sort of modern individualistic med, uh, medicalized intervention wasn't working for i just i see a massive bridge in my mind i wonder if you do as well <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh so i think you 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 used a very important word uh, acceptance so what does it mean to accept that we have changed the air we're breathing right now what does it mean to accept that i have that despair or what i have that pain that's terrible back pain that never leaves me and or this whatever, my, my, my migraine or uh, then getting this response that this is wrong, I'm failing, I should do something about it, it must be something wrong with me since the problem is still there. And then I put additional pain on the pain that's already there, I put additional despair on the despair that's already there by forcing myself, I should have fixed it, I should have fixed it, I should have fixed it. So this is a kind of culture of conquest or culture of, of mastery and if you're not on top of your life then you're a failure you're nothing you just go and kill yourself and life is not worth living and all those kind of things come as a function of your primary starting point which is that i am responsible and i should fix my life alone and if something is wrong then it's my own fault and, and getting out of that whole egocentric um, mastery approach and shifting from control to participation and and just um, acceptance of of what is and then getting nourishment from that rather than um, frantically searching for the right solution, the right psychological tactic or the right medication or the right whatever. Um, This is a very liberating uh, move uh, and the easiest way I know to express it is from ego to soul. Um, you engage with your soul or your whole psyche um, and let's you, you fill it with more wonder uh, and a sense of um, of uh, acceptance and, and reciprocity rather than a um, this idea of, of um, totally being responsible for your the totality of your existence if that makes sense 
one of the things that stood out for me hearing your your journey through all of this is it seems like these those moments of inspiration if you like professional inspiration or this sort of light bulb moments those those key moments where where the change has happened for you it's it sounds like that you've the, those moments themselves have involved you being immersed in and connected with the natural world i have to say t- to read your books I, my my experience of reading your your books is one of not just learning about something you know it's not just a, a process of information sharing actually i've the way you write, the stories you tell, you bring the reader closer to, to nature. I felt more connected to the natural environment just just reading your books. I think because you describe so well this the, the importance of this of this connection, and I, I wonder whether this might be one of the sort of just a crucial you know a crucial part in in what sustains us, what nourishes us. You know, regardless of the degree to which we're engaged in in climate work or in sustainability, actually, this is a this is a, a foundation. It's a it's a it's a bedrock. Hmm. Yeah, in a way, air, uh, the trees, the, the, the running water, uh, birds—they're there uh, to meet us when we're ready. So it's just it's we that have left them. Um, and fixing the climate problem means to return to this sense of living uh, inside a wider web of life. Um, uh, that, acknowledging that the very molecules that I breathe in and those I eat uh, is a way of taking in the world, intimately participating with their mode of being. And the entire ecological destruction and the climate crisis is a byproduct of having deviated too far from that um, reciprocal uh, relationships. So this is the deep side, if you will, of climate psychology. And then we, of course, do need solar panels and we do need electric mobility and we do need um, more, so we say, plant-based proteins to avoid grain-fed beef, all those things, those solutions. Uh, We do need carbon regulations. We do need um, climate-smart shipping. So all those technical things need to be done, but uh, it's, just, it's all up there, like in the brain or in just in the ego. We need, in order to be able to do that in a, in a wise way, we need to connect uh, to that entire unconscious body, uh, which is not just my skin, but also the way my body participates in this living body of the earth. And it's interesting because I think one protection mechanism that I've seen from a lot of people who are concerned about climate is uh, is a desire to withdraw from nature because nature is a present reminder that mm. everything that everything's dying and that can be mm. really really difficult to see the forests or the fields or the rivers or the mountains or whatever mm. part of the earth you grew up knowing and loving changing for the worse in an, in an irreversible way. Yeah, I mean, I think already Aldo Leopold, one of the early natural conservationists in the U.S., said that to become ecologically aware is to open your eyes to a world of wounds. You only see what has been destroyed. Now, the question is, as Patrick, maybe I was raising a bit later, is, okay, how do you respond to that? So there's a wound. Uh, I'm part of that destruction. I'm killing that beauty. Um, So I can shut myself down from it. or I can open up to let that move through me and then see what happens. Uh, And this is my advice. Uh, I hope you can um, 
rather than avoid it, uh, open yourself to the full pain of that. And of course, you might feel that you're dying and this is too much and I can't take it. Maybe you need somebody like Patrick or another person you're, you have confidence in to be there with you because it's too painful to do that on your own. Uh, you need a community and you maybe need some help to get an expression from of that pain in order to be able to relate to it. Otherwise, it will overwhelm you and uh, it's, it's, uh, you, you feel like collapsing and you may even collapse. Uh, so having a support system, having somebody to help you hold that uh, being part of somebody, uh, of a group or network of people that have gone down that uh, painful road before, uh, it's necessary and it doesn't mean you're a failed human because you can't take it. Uh, then we're back in that mastery, uh, heroic uh, self, should we say, flagellation? Is that the right word? We, we are not masters of the world. I'm not master of my life. Uh, things happen and shit happens. And um, letting that flow through and um, deep acceptance of it, seeking help when you need it. And these things are it's the new psychology of climate action because uh, it's not going to be over tomorrow. It's not going to be over next month. Uh, we're in this for the next decades. And if you're not taking nourishment in, then probably you will shut yourself down. All right, episode four. One of the benefits of this episode is that if any of you were feeling doubtful that Patrick really knows what he's talking about, you now have another clinical psychologist to demonstrate that actually Patrick really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I'm not the only psychologist that says these things. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's been it's been very recognized by our listenership. Every time someone tells me they're listening to the podcast, they always say something like, Oh, Carter, you're pretty good, but Patrick is brilliant, which is true and slightly hurtful. <laughs> uh, let's start. I was thinking about what we should cover um, in this outro. And I think we have more or less beaten the concept of not identifying with your emotions to death over the course of this episode and the episode with, with Mitzi. So... I was thinking what we should do is explore some of the concepts in Per Espen's book, which we didn't get a chance to get into, um, particularly the chapters that deal with denial and cognitive dissonance and some of the other coping mechanisms or avoidance mechanisms. Sorry. My first question for you, Pat, is are avoidance mechanisms always bad? Not just related to climate in general. Is it always a bad thing if you are avoiding some sort of difficult emotional topic in one way or another? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I love that you're starting with that question because I think the first thing you have to do is to, to some degree, befriend these strategies. 
but what, I mean, what we're talking about are our psychological defense, uh, our psychological defenses, uh, in a very sort of Freudian psychodynamic way. Uh, these kind of ego defenses that were described like really hundreds of, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, for the first time. And they keep us safe. That's, that's the, that's the thing to say about them. And so if you were to kind of strip away our, all of your psychological defenses, the world would be infinite and terrifying. Um, and so they, they serve a really important purpose, uh, in terms of being able to survive the day to day, let alone comprehending something like climate crisis and everything that it involves. And, um, so we have to we have to kind of start from that perspective by just saying that these are yeah absolutely healthy and adaptive uh, processes, but that can you know in a collective sense uh, over time perhaps have played an unhelpful role in how we engage with climate change. You know, and that's where Per Espen's work has just been instrumental in all of our understanding. Really, for our listeners who aren't familiar with common avoidance strategies. Could you describe one briefly, one that you see commonly in, in practice or in the world? There are different, yeah, there are different forms of, of avoidance. I mean, denial is a sort of, I think is seen as a sort of classic uh, defense mechanism. Um, you know, our ability to know something, but yet simultaneously not know it or unknow it um, in a, in, a, in, to allow some form of emotional protection or buffer against the reality of that thing. And, you know, Per Espen differentiates hugely between denial and denialism as a, as a kind of political tool. And I think we'll, we'll come on to talk about that because that's hugely relevant. And actually that's, that's something that's really taken off since uh, the TED lecture he gave in 2017 and, and what we think about when we're trying to think about global warming, which is around that time as well. But, you know, in, well, in the therapy room and outside the therapy room, I've got plenty of my own defences as well that kick in <laughs> left, right and centre. Denial's one. You mentioned dissonance earlier. Cognitive dissonance is another. Any attempt to kind of distance ourselves from the harshness of, of, of something painful. Um, a big one in therapy is, we, is a tendency to intellectualise an emotional problem. <laughs> Before you can't see... <laughs> Carter's pointing at himself on the screen. You can't, yeah, your listeners can't see that. I would, that, that was not my, that was not my uh, assertion there at all, by the way. I was talking generally, generally about a tendency to do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that's, uh, that's something we all do. And how, you know, how much that has come into the climate conversation as well, you know, um, how we, how we sort of, there's a, there's a safety behind in, in something academic, you know, something that we can intellectualize. Um, per Espen, talked about five he called them the five d's in uh, and I, I just encourage everyone to 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 you don't, you're not gonna have to search too far and wide to find his ted lecture um that he gave in 2017 which really does such a more beautiful job of, of explaining these defenses as they relate to climate information than than i'm about to do um you know any sort of climate communication centers of climate communication around the world have have really uh, used these five Ds to inform their approach to communicating climate. So it's hugely, hugely influential. Um, so these five Ds, he talks about denial being one, like I said earlier, the ability to sort of both know and unknow something at the same time. He talks about 
doom, like a sort of doom fatigue where it's almost like if we become inundated with disastrous information related to the climate, we almost, we become almost uh, apathetic or numb to that information. And these first two, right? So fast forward to what, 2021, Michael Mann's New Climate War, that book talking about the politicization of our psychological defenses. So how denial was was a, a defense that was encouraged by targeted media campaigns, right? With from those with vested interest in maintaining the status quo in the fossil fuel industry, et cetera. And then once sort of denial became implausible um, because of the weight of scientific evidence, uh, it, that there's now this kind of almost uh, politicized and encouraged sense of doomism. And, you know, listening to, listening to Michael Mann speak these days, he's saying, actually, this is the new weapon. This is the new thing we need to be mindful of. We're not, we're not having to work, be as concerned about climate denialism anymore. It's much more around doomism, this idea that it's, it's too late uh, to, uh, to mitigate. Therefore, it's all about adaptation. So these are not just individual psychological defenses that we're talking about. These are these are a, a kind of a play in in and are at large and are, are kind of manipulated in us to some degree as well. These first two, and the third the third defense is uh, distance. Right. I live in North America, so I don't need to worry about climate change. I can't I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that statement, and I'm I'm equally disappointed every time. Right, exactly. I, yeah, exactly. I, I, I mean, I'm in. A, yeah, I'm in a sort of. I'm not as. I'm not in the tropics, or you know, I'm not on a. You know, I'm not in the Arctic, or you know, it's it's. Uh, and the 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 iconography and the imagery has either been kind of scientific information, graphs, etc., or it's been images of um, you know polar bears floating on on uh, melting ice caps. You know, all these kinds of things that are just. It just allow us to sort of put that, you know, and in fairness, with all the more acute and closer problems that we have in our lives, um, it allows us to kind of bottom draw that that issue as kind of important at some time in some somewhere and at some point in the future. Um, and we, I mean, we, you know, this is where the kind of intellectualization thing comes in as well, um, that we can kind of there's a there's a safety behind. Um, the distance of language, you know, parts per million. I know parts per million is something that the young climate activist movement has kind of embraced to an extent, but it's still, what does that mean in terms of our, you know, in, t- in terms of how we interact with something? Um, or like 1.5 degrees. What does it actually mean, temperature increase of 1.5 yeah. degrees, right? Or two degrees? Right. This right. is, this is exactly. something we're going to talk about. Exactly. It is. It is. And it allows us to maintain it as an abstract problem. Um, and then we have kind of dissonance, you know, where we, they, we know that there's a, a gap between what we're doing and what we know we should be doing. Um, and, di- you know, d- dissonance for a long time has been, you know, we've, we've always thought of dissonance in the kind of, um, health, health related behaviors literature. Like, you know, you hear someone who has a problematic relationship with alcohol or who, or smoking is kind of for, you know, who would for a long time kind of, uh, dismiss the evidence that's that smoking was bad or will point to the examples of their relatives who smoked and drank for and lived to 105 and you know all these kinds of things but in in the climate space as well that happens 
I really care about climate change, but I also really want to fly to somewhere tropical for my vacation. Yeah. How do you, how do you remedy? How do you remedy the yeah, classic kind of dissonant situation? We've talked about flight shame as this kind of psychological phenomenon that, that came about in uh, around 2019. And um, yeah, there is this, how, how do we, how do we remedy the imperfections in our modern lives? Um, an easy way of doing that is to kind of dismiss how bad of an impact it's actually having. I have a friend who listens to this podcast who was getting after me for not discussing shame more prominently throughout this season because shame is a it's a very present emotion for a lot of people in developed nations who are concerned about climate and are consuming in a way that is <laughs> very detrimental for the climate. You know that the emissions footprint of the top 1% wealthiest people in the world is double the emissions footprint of the 3 billion poorest people on the planet. So climate change really is driven by wealthy consumers in Western nations when you look at the greenhouse gas footprint. So um, yeah. I'm super glad that we're here well, now I... talking about shame. <laughs> Isabel, I hope you're happy. Thanks, Isabel. Uh, you know, and actually, actually, I think we should, we should talk, we should talk more about shame uh, later in the season and what, uh, you know, and what role it do- it does or doesn't have, because yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And that, and that is part of our sort of collective dissonance, right? If you, you, we are all um, imperfect for the planet, let's say by our, by our mere existing uh, and, and, you know, using whatever, um, a, amount of resources that we do, we have to kind of accept that, you know. But one way of remedying that in, in for ourselves is is if we look to our neighbour who is has a more carbon intensive lifestyle, let's say, or drives a bigger car, or owns two cars, or takes more flights. It's very easy to kind of allay one's own sense of of discomfort with their own behaviours by passing that passing that kind of uh, guilt and and tension onwards. Let's say. We've talked about a couple of different coping strategies <clears throat> or avoidance strategies. How do you know, and as you mentioned at the beginning of this, of this outro, avoidance is not necessarily always unhealthy. How do you know when it's becoming unhealthy? I always feel like there's an example from your own life floating in there. Something. <laughs> Patrick, don't, don't let them know. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I mean that's such that's such a tricky question, isn't it? Because you know, to what you know, at what point is is avoidance unhealthy? You know, this is such a vague answer, but it's it's avoidance only is is unhealthy when uh, that pattern of avoidance is affecting your life negatively. You know, if if actually the thing that you're avoiding is or the 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 the, the process of avoidance is is slowing you down in some way or it's, you know, I mean, obviously in the, in the climate space, we talked about the kind of doom fatigue problem. And that's, that's a real issue for people who are, who are deeply concerned. Um, but, but who actually have this kind of paralysis of, of sort of, it all feels too overwhelming. It's, you know, or it's easier to, um, not engage at all rather than, try to engage and, and as part of that, be confronted with all of this or, 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 and be confronted with the fact that they might, they might try to engage, but still, um, still feel like they're not doing enough. Okay. I'm going to challenge you a little bit because we've talked today a lot about the idea of 
avoidance and letting go, which I know letting go is not the same as avoidance, but um, if I had listened to this episode 10 years ago, I would have had a pretty visceral negative reaction to it because I would have said, what these guys are saying is all wrong. Uh, if you have strong emotions, you have to deal with them. You've got to sort that out. Um, and if there's a problem, you've got to, you've got to approach and resolve that problem, period. There's no space for stepping back and observing emotions. There's no space for avoiding engaging with something that's difficult because if you do that, things aren't going to get better. Can you talk a bit about when it's appropriate to avoid something or detach from your emotions and when it's appropriate to do the opposite and engage or um, try and change things? Because I don't think that either one of those is a, uh, either of these approaches is a a, a, a silver bullet that's always correct, right? There's sometimes one's right, sometimes the other's yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it, de- it depends. Again, I don't, it, thinking about climate, I mean, it depends what the, you want the outcome to be. If you want the outcome to be feeling better in the short term, then avoidance is usually pretty helpful. Um, and there, t- there are times for that, like you say, if actually, if, if there's just, if there's too many, you know, it's like a perfect storm of life plus climate, you know, um, y- you have to kind of, detach from 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 the wider sense of things for a while um if the if the goal is to continue doing what you can then you have to sort of accept that there'll be certain emotional reality you know emotions that are along for the ride sort of thing someone described it really well to me this week sort of saying um she considered herself a sort of climate pessimist in the sense that you know she's to some degree succumbed to the idea that uh, the trajectory isn't looking good for the future. Um, but that is not stopping her doing everything she can in the meantime. Got it. So it's this concept of when there's something that's within your locus of control, you can make things better by taking action. That is a good time to in not avoid a problem, to engage with it, and to, uh, if, if you're experiencing feelings that are making meaningful action difficult, to address those feelings. If you are faced with something that's outside of your locus of control, you can do nothing to change the outcome. This is where, um, this is where avoidance or detaching from emotions, creating space becomes really important because that is the only form of control that you have. You can control how you react to it, but you can't control what happens. And we talked about this, we talked about this a lot already, and I'm sure we're going to continue to talk about it because this is the critical, this is the critical tool, right? You, you divide things into things that you can affect and things that you can't affect. Maybe it's a spectrum. And the things that you can affect, you need to directly engage with. The things that you can't, you need to pay attention to how you feel about them because you can't do anything to change them. So that's a helpful division for me. Great place to end the episode. Next week, 
We're going to speak with Dr. Britt Ray, who is a research fellow at Stanford University. And we're going to speak about a very important question, which is how do you think about the decision of having children when you have good reason to suspect that the future is going to be a very difficult time for everybody living on the planet? So if that's something that you have struggled with or thought about, please join us next week. In the meantime, we're going to roll Orlando's excellent outro. As a reminder, totally enormous extinct dinosaurs. This track is called Broccoli. You can find it on his EP, I Can Hear the Birds. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.